0: is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert, take me to Frederick, Maryland Brokamp. In this episode, Motley Fool Wealth Management's Sean Gates joins us to talk about how to find professional financial help that fits your niche needs. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers.
1: So, Alison, whatever is
0: up? Well, bro, last week, I talked about the future of remote work, productivity, and advancements for those who largely spend their days sitting in front of a computer. In the U.S., that's about 30 to 40% of the workforce, according to McKinsey. But what about everyone else whose job needs to be done in person? Healthcare, education, hospitality. Is there a workplace revolution happening for them as well? What does the future look like? Well, it's complicated. The jobs in this country that can't be done from a computer are diverse. Service, production, healthcare, construction, education, agriculture, and more. Where people do this work is also diverse, from farmers in the field to massive Amazon warehouses to the appliance repairmen who came by my house last week. It is also divided at racial lines. According to the Washington Post, looking at BLS data, 37% of Asian Americans and 30% of whites said they could work remotely, but only 20% of Blacks and 16% of Hispanics said they could work remotely. And the ability to work from home varies by education level. Almost 52% of those with a college education or higher said they could work from home, but only 4% of those with less than a high school diploma said they could. There's also some amount of range in pay. For example, an esteemed surgeon may make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Meanwhile, a server might make a tipped wage of a couple dollars an hour. But if you lump them all together, generally speaking, jobs that can be done in front of a computer pay better than those that have to be done in person. The diverse kind of work we're talking about here, work that can't be done remotely, is so diverse that it makes it hard to talk about. However, when you dig into some of the sectors, there are some interesting things afoot. Restaurants and retail in particular are ready for their big comeback, but struggling to find workers. Experts point to a few reasons. They say some people are waiting to re enter the workforce once COVID has gone away, or they need to resolve childcare issues. And then others say that the stimulus checks pay more than the worker would make in their job, although the Labor Secretary pushed back on this theory. How bad is it for employers? Well, according to QSR Magazine, it's a restaurant trade magazine, 40% of restaurants said they're severely understaffed. The AP cited an example in an article on the labor demands. The CEO of Spartan Nash, I've never heard of it, but it's a grocery distributor and retailer. Their CEO said on a conference call with investors that the company took part in a job fair with 60 companies that had 500 jobs to fill and only four candidates showed up. So in a fun example of supply and demand, the supply being a diminished number of retail and restaurant workers, and the demand being the high number of vacant jobs employers are now having to increase wages. According to the Market Watch, in the past two months alone, wages grew at a 7.4% annual pace, and that's three times the normal annual average. Most of the increases are taking place in lower wage occupations at hotels, restaurants, casinos, etc. A Business Insider story highlighted a McDonald's in Florida paying people $50 just to show up for a job interview. Sandwich franchise Jimmy John's reports that franchisees are offering $300 sign-on bonuses in some locations and up to $200 in retention bonuses. And back to QSR Magazine, they say Chipotle is expanding its benefits to include debt-free degrees, and Whataburger is now forking up six figures for GMs. The biggest retailers are also raising their salaries. Walmart, which is still the largest private sector employer, announced raises for 425,000 employees in February, lifting its average wage above $15 an hour. The second largest private employer in the U.S., Amazon, said in April that more than 500,000 of its employees would see increases of between $0.50 and $3 an hour. Costco lifted its starting wage to $16 an hour this year. Of course, some business leaders and economists warned that increasing labor costs will ultimately pass on to consumers in higher costs for services and goods, which could mean that inflation could be a little more of a long-term pain than the Federal Reserve has said. In fact, it could cause, get ready for this, bro, a wage price spiral. It's a term economists use to describe when rising wages lead to more consumer spending, which leads to strains on providing products, which leads to higher business costs, which leads to higher prices, which leads to more demand for wage increases. And there we are at the top of the spiral again. According to Bloomberg, fretting economists point to the wage price spiral as a major factor uh, behind inflation in the 70s. I wasn't really around for the 70s, but I think I'm supposed to be really freaked out anyone talks about 70s level inflation. Ultimately, the Fed says, don't worry, this is all temporary and that rising wages for the lowest earners in our nation is not going to trip a wage price spiral. Although also, try not to freak out, Chipotle did just increase the price of their menu items by about 4%. So on the one hand, it's nice to see wages rise for the lowest earners in our country who've perhaps been left behind as the wealth gap continues to increase in recent years. But then on the other hand, I feel for small restaurant and retail owners who operate on razor-thin margins and probably can't compete with big retailers and chain restaurants by attracting talent through higher wages. And then, on my decidedly selfish third arm, I like things really cheap. Ultimately, it's hard to see through the fog of war here, the numbers economists look at are all sorts of screwy as a result of the pandemic. And so, it will be a while before we're able to look back with any certainty about what caused what, or when, or why. And even then, economists will disagree. And that, bro, is what's up.
2: Me make up my mind and i give money to bill and he
1: will be on my side The Motley Fools formed almost 30 years ago on the belief that the typical person with enough time and curiosity could manage her money all on her own And while we still believe that we also recognize that there are times when it makes sense to get a little bit of professional help And here to discuss how and when to get such help is Sean Gates a certified financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management a sister company of The Motley Fool. Hello, Sean. Hi, nice to see you both again.
2: Hello. Good to see you too. I guess I should say all three of you.
1: Yes, we can see Rick. You won't hear Rick the producer, but we can all see Rick the
2: You'll never hear me.
1: <laughs> Except for that one time. All right, so you and I, Sean, are a couple of people who worked on the broker side. Of the financial planning industry at one point, and then on the fee-only side, we're both certified financial planners. So we thought we'd be at least sort of qualified to help people find the financial help that they need. Let's find out. So if you are thinking, maybe I do need financial help, let's talk about the range of that. Because there really is a range of the types of things people are looking for. It could be you just have like a, a single question, or maybe you just want one thing taken care of, maybe you just want your retirement plan analyzed. You handle it all on your own, but you just want a one-time second opinion. Or maybe you've gone through some sort of life event. Maybe you got divorced or something like that, and you want to just make sure everything's okay. Um, you can move up from that to where people want a comprehensive financial plan, which involves retirement, college, you know, insurance, maybe taxes, maybe estate planning, something like that. Uh, Then there's investment management, and we know people who are perfectly fine with the financial planning part, but they want someone to manage part of their portfolio. And then there's the whole enchilada. They want ongoing everything, ongoing financial planning and ongoing wealth management. Given your experience, where do you think most people fall, or is it really a broad range of what people are looking for?
2: I think it's a broad range of what people are looking for, but the vast majority of people are looking for a one-time assessment for whatever is particularly salient in their lives at the moment. So that could be an investment review, sort of a second set of eyes on what they've chosen, you know, if they have Vanguard mutual funds, is that properly asset allocated, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um the unfortunate thing is most people just don't know what they don't know, so most people probably should be looking for comprehensive financial planning, proactive financial planning, but that's hard to find and most people just don't really know what that means still. So right,
1: and I think another thing that turns some people off is when they look at the price tag of it, right? So if you want a one-off financial plan or just a little help with something, it's not going to be cheap. It's going to be 150 dollars 300 dollars an hour put it all together it could cost well over a thousand dollars for some people four or five thousand um, dollars and that's a turnoff for some people but obviously over the long term when you're looking at your entire portfolio and your entire financial picture that's actually can be a pretty small investment yes so what, one way that people look at sort of doing it on the cheap which I don't think is a horrible idea at least as a starting point, is to look and see what's offered by the financial services providers you're already working with. So, if you have a discount brokerage account with somebody, there's, chances, there's a chance that they offer some sort of either financial planning or investment management. And I looked into this a little bit, and it's a broad range. So, at places like Vanguard and Fidelity, they'll do it for like 03 to 0.5% a year. You have to have a higher minimum, twenty five dollars to $50,000 other firms they say they do it for free like e trade but then you have to wonder a little bit like is it really for free what are what are you going to what's going to happen on the phone who are you going to be talking to how qualified is that person and then there are firms like t Rowe price and i think schwab does this as well where if you have a certain level of assets around 250,000 dollars you do get access to a certified financial planner. So if you're talking to someone, Sean, and they say, you know what, I'm just going to see what's offered by my discount broker, what's your response to that? Do you think they're going to get good advice?
2: So I think if they go to their discount broker, that's probably going to be okay for that first set of folks where it's, I'm just looking for a second set of eyes, especially if it relates to investment management. Um, Because, you know, the folks who work in that type of environment are usually a little bit more junior. They probably haven't seen as many comprehensive situations. So I wouldn't expect them to be able to provide a full comprehensive plan, maybe unless they have the CFP designation. But but many won't in, in that particular situation. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I think that would be good for a second set of eyes type of conversation and a jumping off point to figure out what you might need if if you need something more robust.
1: Last week's episode we dedicated to robo advisors and we had Matt Frankel on who writes for The Ascent which is a really full website and he reviews robo advisors. So I feel like we don't have to go into too much detail but it is certainly something for some people to consider especially if you're looking for low-cost asset management, particularly if you like index funds and ETFs and I know Sean you and I are both sympathetic toward to the diversified low-cost index fund portfolio. Um, and Matt also pointed out that some of them do provide access to a fin- human financial planner um, as, as an addition to the investment management. So, again, we don't need to go into too much detail. If you're interested in that, look at last week's episode, listen to last week's episode, or look at uh, Matt's article on the Ascent. But that's certainly a, a newer way that people have begun getting some help with, with both investment management and a little bit of financial planning.
2: Yeah. And I I think similar to the broker provided uh, relationship manager or financial planner, you have to be a little bit careful about incentives. And we'll probably talk about this a couple of different times. But um, when it's associated with your current broker, or if it's a robo-advisor, typically, the recommendations, if they give any, are going to be motivated by getting assets onto whatever platform you're talking about. So I think one of the most Common robo advisors that offers financial planning would be something like personal capital. If if you've had if you've ever hooked up your accounts to personal capital, you'll have been called by their financial representatives and it's kind of spearheaded by financial planning, but the goal is to incorporate more of their money management solution into your life. And so you just want to be careful about incentives. And I think everyone's kind of aware of that, but just as you're vetting folks.
1: Yeah, I was looking into the services offered by one of the discount brokers, and they had a a very thorough explanation of how people get paid. So, it was one of the discount brokers that said, yeah, you can talk to a a financial consultant for free. And they they were very careful to use the term consultant, because these people are not certified financial planners. Um, And it talked about all the different ways that you could end up basically paying them for some service or product. And it included asset management, but it also included... Using their bank for mortgages and things like that. So, expect that any solution that they provide to your financial planning quandary is probably going to be served by some product that they sell. Exactly. So, when most people think of getting financial advice, what they really think of is getting an independent financial planner who lives in their area. And this is really sort of the bread and butter of financial planning. Um, and so, we'll, we'll talk a good bit about that. And for really since the beginning days of The Motley Fool, we have always recommended that you look for a fee-only planner who is a fiduciary. So, Just to break those terms down, fee-only means you are just paying them by the hour, by the project, or assets under management. No service fees, no uh, commissions, because, theoretically, with a commission that injects a bit of a conflict of interest. You don't know if they're recommending the product that is best for you or it's going to earn them the better commission. And then fiduciary means that they are legally obligated to put your interests first. You would think that everyone in the financial services industry would be under that, uh, that standard, but that's actually not the case. Um, so, give me your take on that as someone, Sean, who has worked both in the fee-only world as well as in the broker world.
2: Yeah. So it's, there's no, as I've been in this industry, I feel like there's no perfect business model for financial planning. There's always conflicts no matter what you do. So the closest pure fee only service would be hourly. But if you run an hourly business model, it's similar to legal consultations, right? You're always under the auspice that Maybe they're gonna charge, you know, they're gonna slow things down so that they can charge you for more hours. And so you have to be careful about that. I don't know many financial planners that do that, but you just wanna be aware of that. Um, and then you, you do wanna make sure that from the fiduciary side of things, I've, I've been getting the question, are you a fiduciary, quite a bit on phone calls lately as they interview Motley Fool Wealth Management for their services. And it's really easy to say yes. So number one, the certified financial planner designation, I'm I'm beholden to that designation. So I'm a fiduciary by that designation. So any CFP you talk to is a fiduciary to the designation, but then it's to who you work for. So then is the firm overall a fiduciary? And not every firm is a fiduciary or requires fiduciary level guidance. Um, And then finally, back to incentives. I tell people all the time, you know, even though I'm a fiduciary, uh, the business of Motley Fool Wealth Management does better if more assets come under our management. So, in a weird sort of circuitous way, the more assets we gather, the better Motley Fool Wealth Management does, which is probably better for me. So, even though it's not a direct incentive, like I don't get paid on commissions or I don't get bonuses in that way, you know, our company as a whole does better. So, that does create sort of this tick in the back of your mind that could influence the financial planner's behavior. So I think, and we'll probably get to this later in the call, but one interesting question to ask a financial advisor as you think about these terms it isn't just how do you get paid, but it's like, okay, what are all possible benefits of me working with you <laughs> to you as the end user? Because it's not always just a pure transactional money in my pocket type of incentive that could creep up and we could talk more about that as we go but
1: and I, and I know people in the brokerage side who earn their living by selling products uh, and uh, including one person who you know if something were to happen to me I, I told my wife go see this person because he will treat you well um, so they exist but they have to always be fighting against what are obvious conflicts of interest although I think you make a good point that to the degree there's 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 always some conflict of interest in the financial planning world, right? If you're doing assets under management, are you still going to recommend someone pay off their mortgage when you could instead keep that money and manage it or, or things like that? But it's it's not so clear, whereas if someone in the brokerage side says, I think you should get this annuity and I'm going to get 8% commission off that annuity, that's a pretty clear interest that you have to make sure that you're not too conflicted with.
2: Yeah. I mean, from the old world, my, my horror story and why I just had to get out of the sort of quasi commission based universe was uh, someone I uh, had worked with in the past uh, in a loose way. They presented an insurance product to a client and on the insurance disclosures form, they have the commission listed out. It's a, in an effort to be transparent to the client. Uh, but, so, you, you print out this 30-page document that goes through all the disclosures, one page has the commission that's going to get paid to the advisor, and they just took that page out and presented the rest of the pages to the client.
1: Holy <laughs> cow! Wow! Yeah. Yeah. Alright, so let's say someone is sold on this idea of finding a fee-only financial planner who's a fiduciary. There are a few places to find them, and we've mentioned them on the show before. One is the Garrett Planning Network, started by Cheryl Garrett, who is one of my personal heroes. She's really one of the good people in the financial services industry. Um, Another is the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, or NAPFA, which is a network of financial planners. I think they have more than 3,000. They've been around since 1983, independent financial planners. And then a newer uh, entrant on the scene is the XY Planning Network, co-founded by Alan Moore and Michael Kitsis, Michael Kitsis being a financial planning guru who we've mentioned many times on the show before. They started out as targeting really millennials and younger professionals, but now they've expanded their reach to um, include a whole bunch of people. Uh, now, those are great networks to find people in your area. Uh, Sean, what do you think of the, the typical advice of people who are like, well, why don't you just get referrals from friends, and relatives, or maybe professionals you work with?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's difficult because the Garrett planning network, NAPFA and the XY planning network, they, they're awesome resources. And I would encourage everyone to use those, but, but it's not. So, the thing that it's kind of missing is the, the review system, you know, so if you go on Airbnb and you want to find a place to live and you're looking for somewhere that you're not comfortable with, you at least have that social proof from the reviews and because of our industry, because we're so heavily regulated, that's just not something that's really possible. So people will always have a little bit of reticence. You know, I could go into the Garrett Planning Network, type in my zip code, see advisors, but I still don't know them from Adam, right? I don't know if they're going to do a good job for me. So at least it gives me a starting point. Whereas the referral from a friend, you have that social proof built in, but I would just, you know, You have to be careful about social proof. Like I love bro to death, but if he recommended some advisor to me, I would still be a little bit suspect because Bro's kind of weird and he's not the smartest person in every realm. So, you know, you just have to be careful about those those referrals. Go ahead and interview them just like you would interview a Garrett planning network person, but don't rely exclusively on that.
1: In case people are interested in starting with any of those networks that we mentioned, and as Sean mentioned, you just go to the site, you put in your zip code, and you see who's in your area. Um, I think it's important, to, to before, before you even start that, and really, we, we talked on this a little bit in the show, is, is you start with what you're looking for, because some people do just charge by the hour, some people do just charge by assets under management, which means they won't charge by the hour. Some have asset minimums, so you may like their page and think they're the perfect fit for you, but then if you don't have, let's say, two hundred fifty dollars or $500,000, they don't accept you as a client. So, you start looking through uh, the folks in your area. Now, I will say that really, this had been going on before COVID, but since COVID, you don't really have to find anyone in your area anymore unless you want to meet face-to-face. You do have to find someone in your state. Because most of these things are regulated by the states, and and these people have to be registered to work with people in your state. So, that's another thing to keep in mind as you go through and look for someone who's a good fit. I generally recommend that you identify maybe three that you think are appealing. And it could come from these sites, or it could come from recommendations from friends or, or, or professionals you work with. Almost all of them will meet for free at least once, just to say, so you can understand what they're doing. Uh, and then they will actually want to interview you as well, because on the financial planning side, there are people who will say, like, I'm pretty choosy about the clients I work with. I want to I make sure we're a good fit. Any other thoughts, Sean, uh, for people who are looking for a financial planner, or they get a few names, whether it's from these sites or from their friends or professionals they know?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I just like to be helpful in terms of things to think through. So if it's very common nowadays for people to horse race, planners, so they horse race investment accounts all the time, but this notion of interviewing multiple people, you could get to a point where you're like, okay, give me a preview of what your financial plan would look like for me. And they do that with three different people. The, the problem is they're not always comparing apples to apples. So here again, because of incentive structures, you could interview one financial professional who is a fiduciary, but wants to recommend a product that pays them a commission. And that could make complete sense for your situation, but it might not be the best solution. And then you go and interview someone else who has different incentive structures and they have a completely different set of recommendations or kind of view of your situation. So now you have these two expert opinions that have fairly different advice structures around them. And it's hard to parse out what is the right answer. So you are basically back at square one, right? You came into this saying, I need a professional set of eyes. I need guidance. But then you go to these interviews and now you have potentially three, uh, you know, compelling solutions for you, but you don't know how to pick from those. And there's no, you know, (laughs) financial planner for financial planning sake to help pick through all of that. So I think... While it's important to interview multiple people and it's important to ask about cost structure, one of the things that you should really keep in mind is, is this addressing salient questions to my unique circumstance? And do they have a track record of being able to give advice related to that that has value? And that should help parse out all of the different potential solutions that are available to you. A
1: couple of other things to think about is, Basically, to f- check into their history some degree. And that depends a little bit on uh, what kind of advisor they are and if they have any designations. So, if they are a broker, you can check with FINRA's Broker Check, FINRA standing for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. Just Google it. Um, if they're an independent advisor, SEC has the Independent Advisor Public Disclosure Database. You'll get some information about them. It's the disclosures you want to look at, and the disclosures will include everything from bankruptcies to customer complaints. Now, if they've been in the industry for a long enough time, they'll have complaints. Uh, what you want to see is whether they've been resolved satisfactorily or not. Um, and if they have any designation like CFP, CFA, CPA, you can go to the the websites of those organizations and make sure that those people actually have those designations because there's plenty of examples of people saying, they are something, CFP or an attorney, all kinds of things, insurance agent, but they're actually not. They just have these letters, I think, because they figure no one's going to check up on them. Yeah. Any other questions that people should ask once they're meeting with people and deciding on which planner to choose?
2: Yeah, so I think in this this is all a little bit circular, but I think when you ask about cost structure, and we could probably go through like a pro con of each way that advisors charge. So. You know, if, if if a planner charges hourly, the pros of that are you're probably going to get a very cost-effective plan. Because it, th- it doesn't ultimately take that long to do a plan, that upfront work of a plan. So you can get good answers and good guidance for a reasonable cost, and you're probably not going to get screwed because they're just charging you by the hour. The con for hourly planning is they may linger a bit on certain topic areas, but then once you implement, once you, once you get the initial recommendations, there's the implementation phase of the plan. And that's actually a huge part of financial planning is annual reviews or semi-annual reviews to make sure that you're on track with what you thought you would do. And the planner should be helpful in that regard, but a lot of hourly planners don't do that because they're, you know, it's an upfront kind of consideration. And then you could move down to like an assets under management fee. So the the pros of an assets under management fee is there's a very tight correlation between your money and its contribution to achieving your goals. And because they manage your money, and if you leave them, they no longer are paid based on the money that they're collecting a fee on. So they're motivated to keep a relationship management structure in place. So the likelihood that they're going to implement and and enact steps to your financial plan are higher. The cons of that business model are the advice that you're getting are likely that they want more of your assets over to them. Or if you have a, you know, a home mortgage to pay off, they might not give you the the perfect answer on that. Um, And then there's just the straight up, you know, either one, a one-time lump or even commission-based structure. So those cons are obviously incentives the, the pros are I will say pros to commission based um, offerings are they typically have the best product there are times when having the right financial product for your solution for your situation can be a very good thing in my role because I'm not commission based we have I don't have a, a library of products that I can go to if you have a situation that might warrant one you know so so in the most um, crystal example, you know, if an annuity was the right situation, and we're not huge fans of annuities here, but if it was a good solution for you, I'd have to go do some research on what the current annuity offerings are. I'd have to analyze the fee structure. I might, I'm not incented to do that necessarily because I don't get paid on it. So you just might not get the right product. So that, that's a pro of a kind of commission based solution. So just kind of comprehensively thinking through those, I think, would be helpful. Uh, but back to the implementation of things, uh, that that is a very critical part. You should be asking, "Hey, what is your client relationship model? How often do we meet? Uh, if I'm off track, what do we do? You know, how do we evaluate being on track? You know, is it an asset-based goal? Is it a accomplishment goal? Is it a value goal? You know, so I think that's a very important question to to keep in mind."
1: Yeah, I go to conferences all the time of financial planners, and, and many of the folks who just do hourly or project-based will tell me how you know, they put a lot of time and effort into a written financial plan, hand it over to the client, meet with the client a year later, and the client said, yeah, I never got around to doing any of the things you told me to do, so we're starting square square one all over again. Um, and I, Another question I think is important to know is, do you work with people like me? So I, just, I actually recently got an email from a Motley Fool reader who has a big real estate portfolio And I think you would want to work with a a professional tax or financial planning who knows what it's like to manage real estate because that can be very specialized. Okay, so that's that's the stuff on financial planning. I did want to end with some other types of financial uh, assistance that people may be looking for. One is estate planning, Um, and we generally feel at the Motley Fool that estate planning is not something to do on your own. It is worthwhile to get a qualified attorney. That's another place where you can ask for referrals. You do want to get someone who's specialized in estate planning, not just any old attorney. Um, One place to look for attorneys is the website of the American College of Trust and Estate Council. And you'll see if someone is in your area who specializes in estate planning. Um, Another resource that you don't hear that much about, uh, but I think is actually really interesting, is the American Association of Daily Money Managers. Um, These are folks who kind of do the nitty-gritty of finances if you need that help. They will help you create a budget. They'll pay your bills. Um, they'll monitor your bills. Uh, it, a lot of people use daily money managers for coaching services. So these folks don't call themselves financial planners, but they do help people stay on track. Or they help uh, elderly folks with their finances. So let's say your parents are having trouble with their finances. Um, they need someone help just paying the bills and monitoring things. Um, so, if that sounds interesting to you, they also will help you set up, by the way, if you love the idea of like personal capital or mint or something like that, but don't want to go through the hassle of setting that up, they'll set you up on personal finance software. Uh, anyways, you can just go to the website of the American Association of Daily Money Managers uh, and see who's in your area there. And then there's tax help, of course, there's CPAs, but a lot of people don't know that CPAs also have, some CPAs have something called the personal financial specialist designation, which is sort of like being a financial planner with tax expertise. Uh, And then there's uh, the enrolled agents. And Sean, if I remember correctly, you're an enrolled agent. I am. And enrolled agents, they can do your tax return, right? And I'm, and I'm curious why we don't hear more about enrolled agents. Everyone thinks of CPAs, but enrolled agents have gone through the classes and passed the exams as well, correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I took an exam directly from the IRS. I would say the quick like bullet points on enrolled agent is it's actually more relevant to personal financial advice than something like the CPA. The CPA has a lot of business and international accounting rules associated with that you have to know. The enrolled agent is really how do you fill out tax returns for individuals, uh, sole proprietors, partnerships. Um, But yeah, I mean, I theoretically could file taxes on behalf of other people. I actually can even represent them in tax court should they be audited. I have never done that because my business would frown on me for doing that. But. Uh, and
1: before we go, I just have one final uh, resource to, for people to look into. And Many people have um, an employee assistance program at work, it's called an EAP, uh, and many of them offer some sort of financial assistance. So, Just as an example, the EAP at The Molly Fool, they will put you in touch with a financial planner in your area and you get one free hour. And then that they either answer your, you know, one or two questions that you have, and you're done. Or if the financial planner decides that you need a more comprehensive plan or something, you get a discount on the plan. Um, also, our EAP offers free access to software to do a will. Not that I would recommend that, but just an example as the type of financial benefits that many EAPs offer. I feel like EAPs are one of those things that many businesses offer, but most people don't know about. So it's just something else to look at if one is offered at your office. Sean, any final thoughts on what people should do and think about when it comes to finding financial help?
2: Yeah, so very uh, related to what you just described on the EAP, uh, you can contact your employee benefits department because a lot of times um, the plan administrator or the human resources department will have... Especially if you work for a large organization, will have complimentary financial planning as part of it. So, if you have, um, I've run into this, I think at Google. Uh, Google's four hundred one k provider does have some financial planners that they have available through the four hundred one k provisioning that their employees can call and get access to. Now, sometimes it's relegated to only a subset of the employee base. So, you might have to be a highly compensated employee or an executive. It's like an executive benefit. But it, that's becoming more common to offer to all employees of your organization. So, that's another good place to check if you have access to financial planning and you want a second set of eyes. The other thing that I'll mention is just I, one of the questions that we may, said would be important to ask for a financial planner is, do you work with folks in my situation And so, you can think of your profession as a very good one. Bro, you mentioned real estate. You know, if you have a very large real estate portfolio, perhaps seek out a financial professional who's experienced with real estate. Uh, Dentists, you know, dentists have a very common set of problems. They typically either lease or own the building that they operate out of. And that has whole sets of implications for their personal financial situation. Airline pilots, they have very strong pensions. But they have gone bankrupt in the past. So there's just a lot of unique things related to your cohort or your peers. And so think of that as a way to ask questions of the financial planner. Hey, have you ever dealt with dentists before? If so, what does that mean for my circumstances, etc.? cetera? Um, another good example would, I, I speak with um, retired military Uh, government employees, they have their own unique set of benefits, pastors and and priests, they have their own set of benefits. So just a lot of unique, interesting financial planning implications that could add up to a significant amount of value to you. But most financial planners are generalists, and they won't even know about these things. And so even if they're a CFP, they won't know that if you have a 403B through your Presbyterian uh, plan provider, that you can do a parsonage allowance after you're retired. you know, And that's very specific inside baseball, but it just gives you a sense of what could be missing from the conversation. That is an excellent point. Uh, Sean, thanks again for joining us. It's always my pleasure. And as a
1: father of a three month old, go get some sleep. <laughs> thanks.
0: That's the show. It's edited professionally by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Alison Southwick. Fool on, everybody. Do I say stay foolish or fool on?
1: You should say stay foolish.
0: That's what I thought. And stay foolish.